Good morning. Thank you so much for joining in again, uh, taking advantage of our online services. I love knowing that even though we're not together uh, in body, that we are still together in spirit. And as our time even gets, uh, looks like shorter to when we'll probably be able to start meeting again in some capacity. I love knowing that the way that we've taken advantage of this uh, just technological opportunity has been uh, insightful and also helpful to know that God is God is bigger <laughs> sometimes than even our routines and our traditions, and that we're still able to be the church. Um, but man, excited to have some community in person again. I know you are too. Uh, we're continuing our series on pause, and I know as uh, you hopefully tuned in last week, and I kind of laid down the groundwork to say like, hey, I, I don't know if you realize this, but it's been, this is the seventh week of quarantine. I know it's felt either shorter or longer to some of you, um, but for most of us, I know it's felt like, you know, it's been just a continual, just like, wow, it's been another week and another week. And so as we're taking this pause, the whole idea of this series is to say, hey, we need to reevaluate. We need to look at some things again. We need to invite Jesus's voice uh, into some some places that maybe have been uh, disturbed with some uncomfortableness, has been disturbed with some 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 things taken out of our routine, some places where we have space to think and to to act and to change before we jump back into um, even what we were doing before. Um, one of the thoughts that has been in my mind with this series has been something that I've taught to teenagers for a long time. I've taught to those that I've mentored and even people that are close to me. I know that when you say no to something, you say yes to something else. And when you say yes to something, you always, you're saying no to something else. And in this place of pause, I think that's what we all need to do is recognize what we've said no to, whether the government has been required or whether we've personally just chosen for safety. It's because we're saying yes to something else. And when we choose to go back and say yes to the things that we're returning to, we're choosing to say no to some other things. That's not always a bad equation. It's not always something that we need to be fearful of. I think it's something that we need to be aware of. So moving forward, we're just saying, hey, if we are in a pause season, this is where we're at right before we start to roll this rock back into the movement again. And this whole country just comes back to life as well as our state, county and city. And eventually even hopefully our full church will be back together again. What can we do to kind of reevaluate? And so last week we talked about Peter and the need for some pauses and how even Jesus modeled that and the way that he disciple, you know, with the disciples. And I want to take today's story. I want to kind of pull us back into Genesis. And Genesis is a book that for most of us, we know, you know, the creation story and we know Noah is in there in chapter six. And there's a bunch of, uh, you know, lineage and heritage that's in it through this, uh, basically one family's relationship, this family of Abraham and Sarah that grows all the way into uh, basically the nation of, of the Hebrews and the Jewish people. And there's a lot of promises in there, and there's a gap between chapter 11 and chapter 12 where God kind of reinstates his promise to Abraham that he's going to save the whole world through one man's family. And But there's a special section at the end of Genesis that has always been, um, it's been one of my favorites. It's been one that captures my attention, and it's one that captures kind of my, almost like my curiosity into the way that God works and moves and how he is just in and around and working through a lot of things that sometimes I, I, I don't give him enough credit and I don't see his, his vastness and I don't see the power of his ways and how wise and capable he is. But then I read a story like I do in Genesis 37 through 50. Now we don't have time to go through 13 chapters today, um, but I hope that you will go back and read, read some of these sections. The story that I'm, I'm alluding to and the story that I haven't really <laughs> expressed completely yet is, is the story of Joseph. And uh, if you've been around the church, 
uh, for a number of years. You've heard the story of Joseph. This isn't this isn't a new story. This isn't something when you hear um, you know the details of the story, even you you may know them to a degree. But all I want you to see is some things that God is continually up to, and how the passage of time inside Joseph's life and through this story really does a good job of kind of giving us uh, an accurate portrayal of how God works, and also kind of the idea of the journey of what life is, and that one event doesn't always determine the outcome, and that um, you know God can redeem uh, at any point in a story. If you're not aware of the story, I, I, I want to set you up because we're not going to start at the very beginning. A lot of times, um, you know, that's the best place to start. But for, for time and then also for what specifically I want to speak to, I want to jump to chapter 39. And I want to let you know that chapter 39 is kind of the place where the story takes its dark turn. Um, Joseph is born into a family. He's the son of Jacob. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons and da- uh, not David, but uh, Joseph is the 11th. And he's the 11th, but he's the favorite of Jacob. And Jacob chooses to kind of lavish his love on Joseph in a unique way, and it's caused division among his brothers. And uh, I've said to my wife several times that we're not allowed to pick favorites. And I go, I don't know, people in the Bible do a lot, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, the truth is, Jacob did pick uh, Joseph as his favorite. In fact, the Bible says they gave him this special coat. Um, that was brightly colored and kind of signified his special relationship with his son. And his brothers just didn't like it. And, uh, you know, they they became jealous. They became angry. And then Joseph did the little brother thing where he boasted about some dreams that he was having, that his brothers would all bow down to him and that he would rule over even his father and his mother. And it just caused some, caused some division. Let's just be honest. It's some hatred boiled up. And eventually you know, Joseph's brothers, they basically go after him and they plan to murder him. But instead, in the last second, they choose to make some money off of his death, not just to kill him. So they sell him into slavery into Egypt and they tell their dad that he has died to a wild beast and they take his coat, they rip it and they put some fake blood or they put some goat's blood on it. And, uh, you know, Joseph's dad is heartbroken, believes the story. Why would they lie? And then Joseph is carried off into Egypt, um, never to see his family again, forgotten, lost, and enslaved. But there's this line that happens in between when Joseph basically is thrown into slavery and then arrives and is in this house that he will be enslaved at and a servant of, and it's Potiphar's house. But this is the line. It's in chapter 39, verse 2. And it says this, it says this, the Lord was with Joseph as, and he prospered so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. So why I think this is really key is in the midst of this incredible turn of events where Joseph goes from this blessed, I mean, loved above all else. I mean, given the cush life with parents that love him, brothers that are surrounded, a hope and a future and to basically left for dead, betrayed by those that are supposed to love him, and then thrown into a distant land that he's going to be a slave in. Uh, This is the line that is in Genesis, the Lord is with Joseph. And I think that's the first thing that I just just key in, in this story is this idea that, you know, God didn't leave him in this story. God never left him. Even though this is a turn of events that were hurtful, he didn't leave him. 
And then just a few, uh, just a few years later, it says that Joseph was growing in his kind of abilities and he was just doing a fantastic job at this place. I mean, he was given the authority over the entire house, Potiphar's house. He was in charge of all these things that this guy that owned him. And so much so, and it even describes him. He's, he was growing up as a man. He like looked good and he, he, he did all these right things. And so, so Potiphar's wife uh, gets interested in him. And uh, wants him actually to sleep with her. And it's just like, Joseph, you can tell, he sees the like, no way, <laughs> like I ain't doing this. Like this, this would be a betrayal um, and could lead to horrible things. So he refuses. But she's a dastardly woman and she fools her husband into believing that Joseph actually tried to rape her. And so he responds by throwing Joseph out of the house, even though Joseph had done nothing wrong. And it was not in his control. She she basically betrays him and gets her husband to turn against him. And then he is cast into prison now. Not just slave, but now into prison <laughs> in, this, in this Egyptian place, and Egyptian empire. And so now it's, it's worse than worse, right? It's not just you've been cast out of your family, betrayed by your brothers, put into slavery. Now you've made a life for yourself. You're, you've, you've gained responsibility. You've gained prowess. And now you've been thrown into prison w- without your choosing. But yet here's the line that is in Genesis chapter 39, verses 20 and 21. It says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So yet again, as things turn and it's out of their control or out of his control and he cannot see what's going to happen, there's, there's these little hints at what is going on behind the scenes that obviously Joseph probably doesn't feel this. I mean, let's be real. When he's betrayed by his brothers and pulled into the house and now he's thrown into prison, both those times, even if someone was to come to him and say like, hey, God's with you. Like you, you, there's no way that, that you're like, cool, thanks. Like, I mean, like, I don't know what Joseph's complete attitude would be, but he had to have started to at least feel a little bit like, I mean, great. I mean, this is worse than worse. So, I mean, it's good that at least God's with me, but it doesn't really feel like the prospering part of this, the favor part of this is really working at all. (laughs) You know, it's like, thank you so much that you would build me up and let me fall again. And, but the crazy thing about this story is every time that that I think Joseph and I, or you know, or you and I, if we were in that situation, would be discouraged or would be torn down. It, it's not the end of the story. Uh, it's not the end of what's going on. Um, it, it's just a part of the story. And if you don't know the story, I, I highly encourage you because I'm not going to read it. I just want to summarize it. What happens over the next few chapters from 39 to 42 is just, it's mind blowing. Uh, Joseph again has these dreams and he interprets these dreams for two of the other prisoners that are in jail. One of them, a cupbearer, ends up getting out and actually going back to the palace with Pharaoh and has returned his job. Another one, a baker, uh, ends up being killed and dies. And both dreams Joseph interpret correctly um, through, through God, basically, and his connection. And then there comes a time when Pharaoh himself has a dream and the guard, the prison guard and the cupbearer are able to communicate. And the cupbearer tells testimony of, 
what his dream was interpreted by Joseph to the Pharaoh himself because he has that connection. The Pharaoh calls down to the warden. The warden tells him, yeah, this Joseph guy's he's a pretty good dude. And so he comes up and he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he interprets Pharaoh's dream and it positions him perfectly because he has been a manager of a full-time estate. One of Roman's officials was Potiphar's. He's now been in charge of the, the jail and parts of the responsibility of the jail because he's now grown in influence even in his position in prison. And now he's interpreted Pharaoh's dream correctly. And it's seven years of incredible abundance and then seven years of absolute famine. And Pharaoh needs to take immediate action to make sure that his nation and even parts of that Arab Middle Eastern world would not starve. And Pharaoh in that place goes, Joseph, you're the man for the job. And so he goes from prison to one of the most prominent people in Pharaoh's court. In fact, it says he is second in command in all of Egypt. Whoa, right? So then you start to go, God is with you. Holy cow, what is happening? But just like all hurts and all unforgiveness and all brokenness inside of us, no matter the work that God does externally in our lives, that internal work still has a place that he would like to see fixed. Joseph's brothers in the midst of this famine, in fact, in year two, show up to Egypt to look for food because, because of Joseph's planning, unbeknownst to his brothers that he's still alive and in charge, because of his planning, the Egyptian world is the only place that there's really food. And so his brothers trek from their home to Egypt to get some food. And who do they stand before but Joseph, their brother, and they do not recognize him. I mean, why would they? How could this be their brother? And so this interaction that Joseph has now with his brothers at his feet, totally dependent on what he has, food, to, to give, is, is just mind-boggling. And I love what Joseph says. Joseph says this in chapter 42, verse 7, and this is his first interactions. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Now, pause. The heart of what Jesus, I love that it says this. He, they spoke harshly to them, harshly to them. There's this response, this guttural thing in Joseph where he sees him and he's like, oh man. <laughs> and you can tell he's speaking with this, this depth of bitterness and brokenness, all the things that he's been through his whole life, everything that's been unjust, all the things that have been done. And now he has the power to set it right, to say it, to do it, to, to make them pay. And I don't know if that's all the things that are going through his mind, but I know when he spoke harshly to him, that had to be a piece of what was going on in his heart. I don't know if you've ever been, have you ever been in a position where you've leveraged a platform or a position? Have you ever leveraged a platform or a position and your first reaction is harsh or is it gentle and kind? think about this a lot. You know, it's a good indicator a lot of times where your heart's at is if when you have leverage over top of people, even people that have done you wrong, if your immediate reaction is not gentleness and kindness, but it's harshness. There's just this harshness. There's this deep internal thing. And it may not even be, I mean, his brothers just sold him into slavery. They didn't 
falsely accuse him of adultery. They didn't leave him in prison for having, they just, they just committed one of this, but his whole life now has bottled up so that the, the person that led them or led him into this place now is standing before him. And it's just this harshness. I don't know if you've ever seen yourself do this. I know as a parent, oh my gosh, I can have my moments of harshness. I know as a coworker, I can have my moments of impatience and harshness. I know this just as a stranger on the street in the road rage or in the wrong order of McDonald's, evidently, that's all you guys remember. Whatever it is, you know, I can have my moments of harshness. And I wonder if I don't see myself sometimes like, I wonder if this is what Joseph started to recognize, that there was this harshness in his response. So Joseph, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't keep the same tone, but he kind of, he kind of gets a plan. We're not going to read through the whole plan here, but basically comes up with this concept to see if his brothers are still treating his younger brother, because he has now another brother named Benjamin that's younger, if they're treating him poorly, if they're treating him kind of like Joseph. And he wants to see if if he is being, if they have changed their ways or if the same, or if he can kind of get a glimpse of where they're at. And so he comes up with this plan. So he tells them, you need to go back and you need to bring back the youngest brother because they didn't even bring his youngest brother the first trip because they were afraid to lose him. It sounds like Jacob has picked a new favorite and Benjamin's it and he does not want to lose Benjamin. And so they did not bring it. But Joseph literally says, if you do not bring back my younger brother, I will not give you more food. And so they, res- they return and they bring back Benjamin. But then he drops a plot. As they leave the second trip with their food, and as Joseph has set it up, he plants inside their packs with their food a silver cup. And this silver cup is Joseph's cup. It's a very priceless, um, you know, kind of personal item. And so he's setting them up because he wants to see their reaction. So he puts it in Benjamin's bag. And I want you to see what this looks like because he brings them back to his house and he's going to have them sit down and he's going to tell them the consequence if anyone finds a cup in their bags, knowing that there is one there. In chapter 44, we find Joseph saying this as a response to Judah, is one of his brothers and the rest of them. Joseph still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. They threw themselves to the ground before him and said, Joseph to them, what is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like you can find things out by divination? And it's like, I, I, I've been dream. I'm the guy that interprets dreams. I'm the thing that knows more. See, so it's just pride that is in that in Joseph. But can I say to my Lord, Judah replied, what can I say? How can I prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We are slaves that the one who was found to have the cup. So here's what basically Judah comes back with. He's going, look, you found it. I don't know how it got there. You know, if, if it's there, we are, we are totally guilty. We're totally guilty and we cannot, we cannot. And so Joseph's response though is this. It's not just this, it's this. But Joseph said, far be to me to, to do such a thing. Only the man, not all of you, it's just the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go back to your father in peace. So here's Joseph's sinister plan. And I can, you can just see it. He's planted it in Benjamin's bag. And he's telling them, no, 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 I'm not going to enslave all of you. 
I'm just going to enslave the one. And what he's causing is this, that little brother is going to be a slave. Can you see the parallels to Joseph's story? And you're going to have to go back and tell your dad again that you lost your little brother. Ooh, that's painful, right? So guess what? Joseph finds it. They all, he goes oldest to youngest. They, they pull out their bags. They empty the stuff. And then there, guess what? Benjamin's bags opened last and boom, there's the cup. And oh no, oh no. You could probably see it on the faces of the older brothers. They're like, we're gonna go through this again. It's gonna be terrible. There's no way. And so they break down and they just start to go, no, 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 this cannot be. But then we get verse 33 of chapter 44. And this is where I think Joseph's heart and Judah's heart, one of his brothers, start to heal. But now, now then, please let your servant remain as the Lord's in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brother's pause. This is his brother Judah telling Joseph, no, I will go in Benjamin's place. Take me instead. Do not, do not make me go home to my father. Let the boy Go back to the father. Now, this is a huge thing. This is Judah's heart has changed to care about his father's heart. That's what's happened. Before, these were selfish brothers. They had made selfish decisions. They were selfish in their idea that their father loved their younger brother more, Joseph. And they were angry and frustrated about it. And they were envious about it and jealous about it. And then in this moment, you can see Judah has had a heart change. Now, if you go back and you look in chapter 37, you will find Judah is actually the one that says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's sell him to those guys and make some money. Judah's not even at the place of feeling guilty about what they're doing to Joseph. He's trying to fully take advantage of what they're doing to Joseph to now being the guy that's willing to lay his own life in the place of his younger brother. And you can tell that this has an incredible effect on Joseph, that he's seeing his brother's heart change, that, that what has happened has not just affected Joseph in a negative way, but it's also been something that even what Judah said just a few verses before, that God has uncovered his guilt, that he is willing to pay the price if there is something that he has done. And then he proves it by being willing to take the place of Benjamin as the slave. That was powerful. So Joseph can't take it anymore. <laughs> he can't take it anymore. He's got to let the cat out of the bag. He cat out of the bag. He he lets everyone else. He tells everyone else in the room to leave. They're at, they're at this dinner. They're in the palace, which normally Egyptians and Hebrews never do. But he's not Egyptian, so he's got these brothers there, and he makes a full confession. So in chapter forty five, we see him say this, and he says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "Come close to me." When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, when that comes out, I mean, I see this like the movies, like this is that scene where everybody kind of pauses. They kind of read each other's faces. There's kind of this stillness, this this quiet that you can almost like cut, you know, like this this kind of thing that creeps into the room. But now everybody's like, 
Oh man, I thought we were in trouble before. I thought we were in trouble before, but now we have to be just totally in for it, right? Like this is the moment where the guys come in, they all get skewered, like, you know, they're all thrown in prison, you know, like, well, what's going to happen? But then we get these next few verses and you can just tell that, that, that Joseph has thought through this. He's had a long pause. He's had a long time to think through this in quiet places. He's had time to process this. This is not a brass decision. This is something that he's had long hours, long nights to think through. And his response is so incredibly good and full. And I want you to see this. He says, now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. This is like, what? What? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Wow. Wow. I just can't get my head around that. For the two years right now that I've been in famine in the land, for the next five, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. This to me just reveals that David sees the full picture in that pause, in those places that he had space to think, in those moments that things slowed down and became very difficult and hard and uncomfortable, he saw that, that God had a plan. And this is basically what he's telling his brothers. God sent me ahead to provide deliverance. God sent me ahead to provide deliverance. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but that's why when I sit down with someone that's lived a little longer on this earth, that's why when I sit down with someone that's gone through some heartaches, some troubles, or some hurts on this earth, and I sit down with them, and they are able to speak into the issues, the struggles, with wisdom and clarity that, that I just wouldn't have, that I just wouldn't know. I can see how God does that. He provides people in our lives that go ahead and, and they provide deliverance for us. And in fact, it, it just proves the more that God is ahead of the problem. God's ahead of the problem. And that's basically what Joseph is saying. Look, there's going to be a problem for seven years. Your family wouldn't have had any food. What, what, what you thought was going to be this bad thing, like you don't need to be ashamed of it anymore because God actually used it. He's ahead of the problem and he's going to deliver you through it, which is just mind-blowing. And if that's not enough, the whole book of Genesis ends in chapter 50. And it ends with a quote that Joseph says that just, I think, encapsulates the heart of what Genesis is about and what it actually leads into the entire rest of the Bible being about. But Joseph's father dies in chapter 50, and he buries his dad back in their homeland of Canaan, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, his brothers are terrified because they thought, they thought that Joseph had been nice and kind and gentle because of the famine. He thought... Man, Joseph had been nice and kind and gentle because of their dad. He didn't want to distress dad. He wanted his dad to not hate him for killing all his brothers. He wanted to be able to see him again. And so because of the end of this dad and his life, and it's, he's buried him, and now he's come home, and now he's got full authority with no consequence, they're getting scared again. 
They're getting scared again. And it's as if Jesus, Jesus, Joseph is repeating himself of the message that he's learned from God. It's as if he needs to say it again in a more clear way. He's like, look, I've already told you this, that what you thought was was bad, God used to deliver our family, but he has to say it again. And so on, in chapter 50, verses 19 and 21, he re-clarifies to his brothers his commitment to them. And he says this, he says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. I am I in the place of God? Pause. That is such a humble statement. All of my authority, all of my position, all that I've done, all the things that I have accomplished for nations, all the things that I've been allowed to do in my life. And now that my dreams have come true, some of my childhood, that I lord over you and all of my family, I am still not God. I'm not God. I don't have total control. I know my place. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If you could see that and go, what? That's his perspective. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them not in pride, not in platform or position, not because he now had finally arrived and he had this place. No, humbly inserting himself in a position of influence with kind words, seeing the full picture of what God had done. And if you hear nothing else that I say today, if you've blocked this out or you have popped in and out of paying attention, and you've heard the story of Joseph before, maybe you've missed the point of the entire book of Genesis, from the fall of Adam and Eve, to the Tower of Babel being destroyed, to all these nations now being built out of Abraham's covenant, and now all these people that are going to be in this Egyptian world, the whole purpose of, I believe, the entire book of Genesis is the singular message that God has at that time for the world that Joseph declares, and that is God turns harmful actions into healing renovations. God turns harmful actions into healing renovations. He does incredibly healing work in our lives, renovating our hearts, renovating the very bitterness and brokenness of those hurts. And he does not leave us there, saving lives, restoring people, taking our worst choices and turning them into beautiful renovation projects. Man, that is the story of Joseph. And that is the story that Genesis tells from the brokenness of the garden through the brokenness of relationships with brothers to the salvation that ends up coming through him to the people of Egypt through a famine. It is a continued thought that God turns harmful actions into healing, renovations. Paul's words in Galatians, I believe, echo this thought with how we are supposed to restore some people that make some harmful choices and how we are are continually asked to do that in our own wrong choices, to, to hold ourselves accountable and to turn back to God and let him keep doing the things that he's been doing and all the more to carry that with the people around us and to kind of encourage each other as we try to, to believe these things that are harmful choices and that other harmful choices like Joseph's brothers, that they do not have the final word 
and that they are not the final plan and that they, no matter if they have authority over a whole nation, are not God. And that God's plan is bigger than that and that he is ahead of the problems. He's ahead of those pains. He's ahead of those hurts and that he is going to provide deliverance and that he is going to do incredible renovations. And so in Galatians chapter six, Paul writes these words to the church encouraging. And anytime you see brothers and sisters, that's everyone. It's everyone. Everyone in citizens of heaven, brothers and sisters, if any of you is caught in sin, missing the mark, falling short of what you know is right, not doing what you should, you should live by the spirit. See, there's that spirit, helpful, teaching new things, reminding us of what we know. Live by the spirit should be restored, restore, should restore that person gently, 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 not with a weaponized version, not harshness, with harsh words, but kindly gently, but watch yourselves as you may be tempted, just as Joseph was, you can tell he is tempted in this story to go his own way, to use his platform and his authority, but carry each other's burdens. This is the way you will fill the law of Christ. Can you see that, that Joseph, thousands of years before Jesus ever comes, is working just as Christ did? It is the same message, same heart, that he's restoring his relationship with his brothers, providing a way for salvation to come to his whole family, to a nation, to that part of the world through his humility, hard work, and surrendering to God and providing kind and gentle renovations and restorations to the people that have hurt him. Incredible how that reflects that. And he goes on and says this, but anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I think that's so good that in chapter 50 of Genesis, that's what Joseph's like, hey, I'm not God. All right, just remember that. I have my own shortcomings. Each of us should test then our actions. They should take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to anyone else. This is not comparison. We've said it before here. Comparison. There is no win in comparison. Anytime you compare yourself to someone else, you are not reflecting what Christ wants in you. You are unique. You are a person that God wants to see and work in, not to reflect and respond and compare yourself to other people. It is you and God that is a part of this. And he goes on, he says this, for each of you should carry your own load. There is a responsibility that each of us have to work and to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Remember, nevertheless, anyone who receives instructions of the word should share all good things with their instructor. If you learn and grow in the spirit, guess what? Share it. That's why I love our podcast that we do each week. We love to learn and we're learning about all kinds of things and sharing and laughing and having fun and growing. You should be sharing things, doing Bible studies, sharing some things that are helpful, uplifting and gentle with the people around you that God is teaching you. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. One of my favorite verses. You will know a man by his reaping and sowing. This isn't a salvation issue. This is just talking about what your actions do. You will know a man when they reap bad things, they get bad things. If you plant junk, you get junk. You plant good things, you get good things. For each of you carry, or I'm sorry, whoever sows, <laughs> for each of you should carry their own load. Nevertheless, you should receive the instructions and, and all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Forever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Ooh, some of you have seen this. That's the concept that I used every single time. Forever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. The best way to illustrate this is this. 
If you've ever seen someone that's been addicted to a drug like meth, meth and you've experienced meth mouth where you see their teeth and their, their very mouths and their, their flesh is changed by this drug and it's a horrible thing that's terrible and, and it's definitely something that's outward expression. They can receive Jesus and they can absolutely receive new life and they are exactly who Jesus wants to know, loves them and cares for them and wants more for their life. But 99.9% of the time, they don't get their front teeth back. And they don't get their skin to be refreshed. That's not a part of what Jesus is so concerned about. This is the idea that you and I, we can do things that can destroy pieces of our soul, our relationships that may not look like a physical thing like meth, but it can be absolutely detrimental to our lives. But he says when we sow in the spirit, it's the exact same way. We People may never see it. They may really know it, but it flows out of us. It, it looks like when things go from harsh to gentle, from bitter to forgiveness, when kind words flow out of us, even in moments of brokenness and hurt, when gentleness is a part of who we are. So let us become, let us not become weary in doing good things for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The fruit of the spirit shows itself. It reveals itself. Just like the cross looks like a defeat, it reveals itself in an empty tomb as a win. And he says this in conclusion, therefore, as, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers, all people. But in this time, as we are starting to restart, as we are seeing the pause, and now we're going to move and restart things, this verse needs to be, we need to be more aware than ever to be on the lookout for ways that we can help each other, encourage each other, carry our own loads, but then look also to the people around us. And if we do that well, we'll see God turn harmful things, what the enemy would see as a win, into incredibly helpful renovations, healing reno re renovations, works that would reflect the law of Christ in an empty tomb. Man. If we could take advantage of a pause and see God move again like that. I have a few questions for you to think about here as we conclude, as I said I would each week. As we pause, I want you to think about this question. Do I need to reach out to a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker and ask for forgiveness? I wonder if Joseph's brothers had had an opportunity to reach out earlier if they would have. If some of them in the years afterwards felt guilt or felt shame, and if they would have had a chance to undo what they did, if they would have. And I wonder how many of us, we still have the opportunity, a Zoom call, just a text message, a Facebook message, maybe just a phone call, or maybe even eventually, hopefully, face to face, and just say, hey, I need to ask for forgiveness. I know I did this. I was harsh. I was unkind. I was jealous. I was envious. I was greedy. It was wrong, and I did it anyway, and I shouldn't have. Pause. Let the voice of Jesus come in and change things. Listen, respond, ask for forgiveness. You're not doing it to hear a certain response. You are doing it because you've been called to. Even if forgiveness does not come, the part is you do what you can, and then you trust God to do the rest. Maybe there's someone you need to ask for some forgiveness. And the second question is this. Do I need to reach out to a friend who is hurting or stumbling 
and offered gentle help. Keyword here is gentle. This is not a place where you go in guns blazing or with the sword to cut them down or weaponize the word. This is where you just come in with gentle help. And you say, hey, I want to help you carry this load. It will cost you more than you want to pay. It will be a cross in some ways for you, but you're willing to step in and help. And some of you have seen a friend. You have not talked to a friend. You have heard about a friend, and yet you haven't reached out with gentle help. Gentle help. And some of you need to. You just need to, you need to make the call. You need to send the message. You need to ask the question. You need to reach out. The last question is this, and maybe some of you have found yourself in this. Do I need to reach out for help with my own actions and stumblings? Some of you have found yourself like Joseph's brothers, and you just, you don't even know how to repair. You don't know what things you need to do. It, it, it feels so beyond your control, so beyond you just feel like you're not even yourself. How could you do this? How could I have done this? How could I have let this get a hold of my life? How could I have made this choice? And you need some help. And you need somebody to come alongside you, not that you're not willing to carry a piece or to take responsibility. It's like, Judah, I will, I will stay. Let my brother go. You will stand up and do what you need to, but you need some help. And if you need that, you need to reach out to a friend. You need to reach out to someone that you're close to. And if you don't have someone that you're close to, if you're not, send us an email here at the church. We would love to get one. We'll link that. Right below, you can send us an email. We'd love to help you if you need help. Get out of this. Reach out. Don't stay where you're at. Now, these questions are here intentionally. We're going to continue to do this through the series because I think our goal here is to pause, listen to the voice of Jesus that changes everything, and then respond and put it into action. Right? That's what we're here to do. So if you need to reach out to a friend and ask for forgiveness, all right? If you need to find a friend and offer some help, or maybe you need help yourself. Let's start to respond. Let's not let this pause, this moment where we hear God's voice gently calling us to new things. Let's not miss the opportunity. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Well, let me pray for you. I hope God continues to move. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity, Lord, to take a pause, give you a moment to speak. Lord, speak into our lives. Call us to a place where we can ask for forgiveness, that we can offer help to those around us that need it, that we could even ask for help for ourselves if we need it, that we would not be in fear, but Lord, that we would trust that, Lord, you take hurtful actions and you turn them into healing or renovations, Lord, that you do that or continue to do that in our lives, work through us, work in us. Lord, we thank you for your son and his work on the cross. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you later.